0: Please turn in your Bibles to Joel chapter 2 as we continue through the book. So according to the National Fire Protection Association, every 24 seconds a fire department responds to a call in the U.S., over the past 10 years or so, there have been an average between 3,000 and 4,000 deaths per year from fire. And the threat of fire is something that people take very seriously. Every plan you look at will emphasize the need for a good escape plan in the case of fire. So any large building you go into, they're going to have posters, papers, things on the wall everywhere telling you, go this way in case of fire. Don't use the elevator. Use the stairs, whatever the directions may be. Follow the dotted line out through the safe escape route. Families are supposed to work out escape plans together. In the event of an emergency or fire, how do you get out of the house quickly? Where do you gather? All those types of details. And with all the care that Americans and fire departments put into fire safety, it's obvious that they're very serious about saving lives and saving property. Great amounts of time and money and effort are put into this fire safety, and rightfully so. But what are the people of this nation doing to plan for eternity? The fires of hell burn much hotter than any house fire or fire on this earth. And if you die in a fire, it's going to be terrifying, it's going to be painful, but in the grand scheme of things, it's going to end very quickly. But the fires of hell are an eternal fire of never-ending anguish. So what can we do to escape this eternal fire of hell? That's really the topic for the text this morning. Now, before we dive into this text for this morning, understanding the beginning of Joel, what led us to this point in chapter 2, is fairly crucial. In chapter 1, Israel was undergoing a horrible locust plague. The bugs had left nothing for the Israelites or even the animals to eat. The devastation was all the result of Israel's sin. They had walked away from the Lord, and therefore God was disciplining them. And Joel told us that this plague was worse than anything the Israelites had ever seen. All this chaos and punishment on Israel was all because of her sin. Well, then Joel 2, chapter chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it picked up on this locust plague. But Joel was no longer just talking about the locust plague. He used the locust to point to the dark and gloomy and terrifyingly devastating, great and awesome day of the Lord. Or in other words, the final judgment. So Joel ended in verse 11 with a question. Who can endure it? Who can withstand the full power, glory and holiness of God Almighty on the day of the Lord? There's nothing Israel could do in and of themselves to escape the wrath to come. There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to save us from that day either. No one can escape the wrath of God on the day of the Lord on their own. In order to escape the wrath and fury of a holy judge, we need a escape plan. And as we've already mentioned, anything we can think of that we can come up with is going to be completely insufficient. It's going to be incapable of saving us from hell. So we don't just need an escape plan. We need a divinely given escape plan. the love, grace, and mercy of God in Christ is the only divinely approved escape plan from the fires of hell. And as we work through our text, we will see that our loving God has established a wonderful plan for us in Christ. So here's the thesis or the proposition for this sermon. Because the Lord is overflowing with steadfast love, we must be found in Christ. And latent in that proposition is really the entirety of the gospel and the Christian life. To be in Christ is a very pregnant term. Just read through the book of Ephesians and you'll begin to see the complexity of being found in Christ. So we're going to work through three points today. And these three points are Joel's summary of an evacuation plan on how to escape God's wrath. So with that introduction, let's read Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 32. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rid your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrated fast. Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where's their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. Now I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things." Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. My people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to a, a long text, what is very much a difficult text, We pray that you would guide us by your spirit, teach us the things that you would have us learn and convict us. Also drive us to, through that conviction, to a greater love and admiration for Christ and what he has done on our account. We lift all this up in his name. Amen. So the first point for this morning is that because the Lord is overflowing with steadfast love, we must repent from the heart. And this is looking at verses 12 through 17. So in verse 12, God is the one who gives directions to Israel. The God whose voice thundered in 2.11 as he led his locust army against Israel is the same voice that now says, repent and return. He is the one who is powerfully speaking here in this passage. God is speaking, and as the prophet Habakkuk would say, the Lord is in his holy temple, but all the earth keep silence before him. Because when God speaks, you know what He says is true and effective and powerful. So more often than not, when God is speaking in this way, our best response is to be silent and to listen to what He has to say. And in light of the coming judgment upon Israel's sins, God gave them very clear commands. Step one of enduring the day of the Lord is to return and repent in faith now. If you don't like the locust plague, you may want to repent and go to God. Because if you didn't like the plague, you're definitely not going to enjoy the day of the Lord. Look at verse 12 and 13 and how they describe repentance. God does not want half-hearted repentance. What he commands is total body, mind, and soul, inward and outward change. There cannot be outward shows of faked repentance just to save your own skin. That's not to say that outward signs are unimportant. In this text, we see that God wants to see all of the outward signs of repentance. But the Israelites cannot stop at those outward shows of repentance. Their outward actions must reflect the internal realities of a repentant heart. So to rend your hearts is a play on the rending of clothes, which was a normal practice when some overwhelming tragedy befell you in the Old Testament. It's something that you did if you lost everything. Jacob tore his clothes when he was told that Joseph was dead. Job tore his clothes when he was informed that he lost everything. When Jesus was before the Sanhedrin and affirmed that he was the the Christ, the high priest cried out blasphemy and tore his clothes. So as you can see, tearing one's garments does not necessarily mean an inner heart change. But God does call on his hearers to tear their garments here. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. So the idea of a a rent heart is very similar to David's contrite heart in Psalm 51. And that's a psalm where David is repenting after being confronted for his sin with Bathsheba. And true repentance is done with a contrite heart. It's also similar to the concept of circumcising one's heart in Deuteronomy 10 and Jeremiah 4. And these other passages are helpful for us in getting a feel For this concept. But no other passage gives as much detail and as much emphasis on the idea of rending the heart as does Joel 2 12 and 13. So back to verse 13. God says, Return to Him. How do we return to God? Well, all the descriptions we've looked at so far are ways in which we return to God. We return through wholehearted repentance involving involving the heart, soul, strength, and mind, well, the Lord gives us many wonderful reasons to come with him, to Him with repentant hearts. Of course, there's something we have to do, is something that we should do, but then God gives us more good reasons to come to Him as well. And all of the reasons to repent are a result of God's amazing character in this text. He is patient, He is forbearing, He is merciful, and God has promised that all who return and repent. Believing in Him alone for their salvation, they will be saved from the fires of hell on the day of the Lord. In verse 13, if it looks familiar to you, it may be because it's Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This passage is quoted many times in the Old Testament, but only here and in Jonah is the phrase, and he relents over disaster added. And this shows us that God's pronouncement of judgment is for the express purpose of driving his people to true repentance. God has removed the eternal penalty for our sin. He has relented over disaster. When Paul and Silas were speaking to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And if you remember that account, there was a miracle in which all the cell doors opened. And the jailer was about to kill himself because he preferred that to the punishment he would get for all his prisoners walking out. But instead, he goes in and who's in the cell but all the prisoners and Paul and Silas still in their cells. Well, naturally, the jailer shocked by this. Anybody else would have run. So he asked him, how can I be saved?" He got it in that moment. And they told him the glorious truth of the gospel in one sentence. Repent and believe and God will rescue you and pluck you from the fire. What a wonderful promise that is. Really, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Well, another wonderful aspect of God's character is that he is the one who receives all the glory in the end. So even our repentance and our faith are added to his overwhelming glory. And that really shouldn't be any surprise to us. The first Westminster Shorter Catechism question, what is man's chief end? Well, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy enjoy him forever. But what is truly wonderful is that it is God working in us, which enables us to turn around and glorify him. He's both the object of all glory and the source of all glory. And we see this in verse 14, where God's blessing on Israel will include the means by which Israel can turn around and resume temple sacrifices. We see that in our tithing today. God gives us everything, so we turn around and give back to him. Scripture teaches us that God is the one who provides for us. It is his money in the end. We're just stewards of it. And what I find wonderful is that our incentives to repent and return to God They all flow from his own character here. He gives us a great incentive, which is actually fellowshipping with him. In verse 14, the blessing God will leave for us is an offering for himself from Israel. The material blessings of the restoration were equally for their comfort and for their worship. So God provides Israel the goods they need to survive, to be satisfied, and to turn around and give back to God. Moving along in verse 15, we see a trumpet sounding. Now, if you remember the sermon from chapter 2, verse 1, the trumpet's a terrifying thing. There it was signaling a call for their destruction. There was a call to weep and to wail because God had brought the enemy to their gates. But now the trumpet is a call to awake and to flee the coming judgment by the means God has given us repentance. Repentance. It's a call to all people to come to the temple to seek God's presence where he may be found. The temple was where God's special presence resided among his people. So the message is simple, really. To seek repentance, go to the Lord. And we see in this text that all are required to come and give wholehearted repentance. No one is exempted for any reason. And this shows us both the gravity of their situation that all have to come And also the corporate guilt that was on all of Israel. It was not just John or Jane's personal sin, but also everyone's corporate sin. Everybody had to deal with the locusts and the destruction, so all needed to repent. The people of God then and now are one people. So if the whole church, so if the church as a whole is in sin, in a sense, so is every member. God requires full and total repentance from us. And really, isn't that how we have to come to Christ anyway? Full and total repentance and surrender. So when the call comes to repent, there is no excuse. Deuteronomy 24 says that all grooms were to be given military leave and leave from public service to be with their new wives for a full year. Now, it was a good biblical standard so that husbands and wives could enjoy each other, get to know each other and produce offspring. It was a good and expected practice for the groom to stay home and not do anything. But here the groom even has no excuse. All are called to come. So from this, we can learn that even good things, even good excuses will not work in this situation. When it's time to repent and return, everyone is called forward. There is no excuse. The priests are to do their duty in leading the people in mourning and repentance as they seek God's forgiveness. And they do so by calling upon God's covenant promises to Israel. They also appeal to God to defend his own glory. Did you notice the question the priests ask? If his people are ridiculed among the nations, how will that bring him glory among the nations? Well, Israel is to call upon God to uphold his own glory. Not something we think about very often. The priests are to lead what is essentially a communal complaint to God asking for his help. Now, the description is very similar to the complaints given in Psalms 74 and 79. And they're not complaining in the sense that we often think of it like whining. These complaints are appropriate and call upon the promises of God, asking God to fulfill those promises to his people. So what God has promised to us, we have every right to go to him and ask. Well, this section 12 through 17 is all about repentance. And this is part one of the fire escape plan. The end of verse 17 refers to God as their God. So even after the rebellion and their punishment, Yahweh is still Israel's covenant God. Talking about God here in this text, Joel says, you are three times and there once. God has not left them. He has not abandoned them, though they tried to leave him. If Israel will repent and return, God will pour out his mercy on them and will forgive them. So what should an Israelite's response be to God's promise to forgive? What should our response be? Well, point two, because the Lord is overflowing with steadfast love, we must praise our deliverer. This is looking at verses 18 through 27. So this section begins the second half of the book of Joel, which is a series of oracles to reassure and comfort Israel that God is with them. The section deals primarily with the immediate blessings Israel is going to receive after repentance and returning to God. So the answer to Israel's plea for help in verse 17 is picked up in verse 18. The Lord's response is that he became jealous for his people. He had pity on his people. God did not wait and see or begrudgingly answer Israel's plea. The plea was made with repentance heart, repentant hearts and boom, God was jealous for his people and took pity on their suffering. So, like a good father, when your child asked for help, he was moved to help them. I think this is helpful for us, even though it may seem out of left field for a second. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 100, asks What does the preface to the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is Our Father who are in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence. As children to a father able and ready to help us. So, in this text, you may have heard jealousy and you may have heard something bad. And we often think of jealousy as a bad thing, and in many ways, it is a bad thing for us. There are some cases in which a reaction other than jealousy is a sinful reaction. A married person is to be jealous for their spouse's love and attention. Now, of course, that can be mishandled. But there's a good jealousy which we must all have for our spouse's love. And if you're unsure if that's possible, if you're unsure that there can be a good form of jealousy, look at verse 18. If jealousy is always wrong, then God cannot ever be jealous. But here we're told that God is jealous for the love of his people. Does he not have a right to our love? He made us, he redeemed us, he guides us, and he loves us. His jealousy for us is a good thing. Exodus 20 is a key text for understanding God's jealousy. It says, You shall not bow down to them, referring to idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, jealousy is a consuming love. It overwhelms our hearts and our minds, and it's very similar to pity, which I think is why Joel mentions them both. The two really go hand in hand. Because God loves Israel, He he did not want to see them suffering and hurting. So once the discipline of God drove Israel to repentance, God could come to the rescue of her physical ailments. God's love for His people leads Him to stop the judgment against them and to restore what they have lost. He will restore the grain, which was lost in chapter 1, verse 11. The wine, which was lost in chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. The oil, which was lost in chapter 1, verse 10. He's going to restore it all. But they won't just survive. They won't just get enough to make it, and that's it. They're not just going to get back some of these staples. They will be satisfied, says Joel. They were starving, and they had been for some time. So to someone undergoing starvation, this is a radical, this is a huge promise. Some of these people may have been close to the point of death, but soon you're going to be filled to contentment. Now, of course, if you're an Israelite in this situation, you're going to be asking, when? When are you sending us this food? Well, the, the phrasing is, I am sending. It's an active statement showing that the immediate fulfillment is coming. God is already working to restore these staple crops of Israel and to bring relief. Complete restoration is in view with nothing left lacking. God will even remove the source of the problem, the northerner. Now, the northerner is referring to the locust army, but it also carries with it apocalyptic imagery. Since Gog and other uh, classic enemies in prophetic literature in the Old Testament, they all come out of the north. In other words, God's going to remove the temporal enemy. But if you remain faithful, then he will also remove the final enemy, judgment, death, and hell far from you then we get to a rather odd phrase in the text, the smell of the locusts, the stench of them. And really, I think this is meant to present two things. First off, locust rotting in water produces a horrible stench. What a great gift that seems to Israel, right? A horrible smell. Well, it may seem like an unpleasant thing, but it means that the enemy has been destroyed without a doubt. So can you just picture a strong wind coming in from the north of Israel and blowing the locusts to the east, to the west, and to the south and clearing them out entirely? It reminds me of a verse that talks about the spirit as a, as a wind, which blows where it wishes, and no one knows where it's going to go. It blows here, then there. You don't see it coming, and you don't know where it will go. Well, in the same way, God's going to drive these invaders away. Then we get to verse 20. And the end of verse 20 is referring to the great and arrogant work of the locusts. They were God's tool of judgment on Israel, but they will be in turn be judged for the evil they have inflicted on Israel. And if we look at how God used the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans in history, and now the locusts, when we look at them, we really see a pattern emerging of how God uses armies. God is able to use any entity to do his will and to discipline his people. But we also see that when those things go beyond the mandate given them and they become proud, God will in turn punish them verse 21, Joel, Joel calls on the land and animals not to fear, but to rejoice. Creation is commanded to rejoice, and then Israel is commanded to rejoice. That which was cut off in one hundred sixteen is restored now to Israel. God promised to restore all the normal seasons of growth. The early rain came in the fall to prepare the ground for plowing and sowing. The latter rain was a light rain which matured the crops and got them ready for harvest. Well, the point of all that information is to tell us that God will return the normal seasons to Israel. The crops are going to come back. Everything they need in order to plant and produce crops, God is going to provide. So when Joel gave this message to the people, it was still a future event. They are standing in the midst of a dry and a barren land while starving. Even before the blessings return to Israel... She is called to call on God in praise and to rejoice for the promised blessings to come. Well, then Joel gives even further incentives to praise God despite their situation. The empty storehouses and granaries of 110 will be restored and even overflowing. There will be plenty for everybody to eat. There will be no lack. And that blessing is not just the result of God removing the locusts, but also of rich provision and blessing on the farming we can see from the text that the locust plague had lasted for at least two years at this point. Can you imagine multiple years of locust plagues? Could you imagine five years of true COVID-19 shutdowns? Well, God will restore the years the locusts took plus more. Whereas before the locusts ate everything inside and they were never satisfied, now Israel will eat in plenty and they will be satisfied. They won't have to devour the entire landscape. God will give them what they need to be satisfied. Their physical blessing was meant to point to the spiritual contentment that true trust in Yahweh will bring. So far greater than our physical needs, God will satisfy our souls when we return to him. And this is how God shows pity and jealousy for his people. Verse 26 tells us that God has dealt wondrously with them. Now, this Hebrew word is used almost exclusively for God. It carries with it the idea that all good, surprising, and pleasant things belong to God alone. So the result of all these physical blessings, God's wondrous love, and His promises must lead to understanding more about who God is. In verse 27, to know is more than just head knowledge. It means to live your life according to the truths of God. In every area of our lives, we must seek to submit our thoughts, deeds, and emotions to the mandates of Scripture. So if we truly believe that the Bible is sufficient for all of life and salvation, then we must humble ourselves before it daily and seek to bring our lives into accordance with its commands. If we pray for God to make us holy and wise, we must be ready to utilize the means which He has given us in order to grow and to mature Christians. As readers, we must be gripped and governed by who God has revealed himself to be. He alone has to be the cornerstone on which we build. He alone is the one who tabernacles among us and indwells us by his spirit. He's the one we must know and the one we must praise. So at the end of this section, we see the full answer to the question from chapter 2, verse 17. That asks, where's their God? Well, the answer is that God is with his people in their very midst. Is with them, never to leave them or to let them be put to shame again. That is the gospel, is God dwelling among his people. The Israelites were given all these immediate blessings. But in the last section, we're going to look at the future promised blessings of God. So the final point. Because the Lord is overflowing with steadfast love, we must trust in his promises. He's looking at verses 28 through 32. So in the previous section, Joel explained the immediate blessings God promised to Israel when she returned to him with her whole heart. But now Joel is going to explain that there is far more blessing for his people than just physical blessings. The restoration of physical blessings was wonderful. It was complete. It was satisfying. The prophet is not trying to downplay the fulfillment of those physical blessings. It's more like saying this. You think this is great? This is only meant meant to point you to the spiritual realities which God has promised. The physical blessings Israel received were meant to be a physical sign of his presence among them. God promised that his spirit would be poured out on all people. The result of this outpouring of the God's spirit will be greater revelation and greater knowledge of God for his people. God will not lightly ration out his spirit, but will pour it out richly on his people. And he will pour it out on all people, slave, free, male, female. For most of the Old Testament, only the leaders were really said to have the Spirit of God resting upon them. And we know that the Spirit was active, otherwise no one could be saved. But there's something more full and more grand being promised here in this text. Joel tells us that the future result, the future results of the Spirit falling on God's people. All Israel will receive visions, they will prophesy, they will dream dreams. Everything mentioned will be for the purpose of God giving revelation of himself to his people. Moses said that he wished all people could be prophets. Well, God will soon fulfill that wish. The idea reminds me of what Paul prays for in Ephesians one seventeen, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In him is referring to knowing Christ more fully. I think the meaning here in Joel is the same. God will pour out his spirit, giving dreams, visions, and prophecy so that people can know him better. But notice there's nothing said about ecstatic, over the top emotionalism, which characterizes a lot of the charismatic movement in the church today. The addition of that wild emotionalism is really something pretty new only over the past couple hundred years. And just to add to that statement, God is the one who chose to send his spirit out. And in our text, it is the spirit that is doing the work, not the recipient. Joel's statement of all flesh is a wonderful precursor to Paul's statement in Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here in Joel, we see that he is only talking to the Israelites, However, from what Paul just said, it clearly includes the Gentiles, too, in this promise. So that's where we need to understand what the church really is. We are the same people of God continued from the Old Testament. That's why in Galatians 6.16, Paul calls the church, the Gentile church, the Israel of God. God's promises are for his people. As we read earlier, this section is quoted in its entirety by Peter in his sermon in Acts 2. We know from Peter that this great outpouring of the Spirit, which God announced through Joel in verses 28 through 29, occurred with the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. So after Christ ascended into heaven, he sent out the Holy Spirit to lead and equip the saints for ministry. Then in verses 30 and 31, they predict the cosmic signs which will accompany the day of the Lord. So will all these things occur on the last day? Well, yes, we know from the Gospels Thus, some signs did accompany Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit of Pentecost. Christ's death and resurrection inaugurated the last days, which is how Peter referred to this time in Acts 2. The section of time goes from Christ's first coming until he returns on the final day of the Lord. So, some of these events will occur in this last era. Christ himself applied the cosmic signs both to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans... And to the final judgment day. Peter quoted this whole section in Acts 2. We read it earlier in the scripture reading. Which suggests that he saw all of this passage being fulfilled in some level at Pentecost. That's where we have to understand that prophetic imagery is not always to be taken literally. The cosmic signs which Peter saw were likely partially met in the establishment of the church. Which would conquer over the world in time. In fact, these last days are marked as the church age. But the cosmic events will find their final and total fulfillment at the day of the Lord. We can also see that Peter's commands in Acts 2.38 are remarkably similar to Joel's call to repentance in Joel 2.12. Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now look back at Joel 2.12. Well, the only significant difference is that Peter exchanges the morning rites of Joel for baptism. So here in Joel, the call was to practice biblical morning rites. But the New Testament era is marked by the giving of baptism as the new sign of the covenant in a new era. That's our new command. But the end of verse 31 reminds us that the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. And this should make us ask Joel's question, who can endure it? Well, verse 32 gives the answer to survival and escape. You must call upon the name of the Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who know the Lord will escape the wrath to come. And included in those, included in that are those whom God has called. And this cannot be talking about all believers because Joel says that out of the survivors, there will be some whom God has called. What is a subsection of believers? And I think here we're seeing a hint of the Gentiles that are about to be brought in to the people of God. So those in Mount Zion and others whom God has called, implied from the outside, will be brought into his holy mountain and will there be saved. Why will they escape? Because they repented, returned, were filled with the Spirit, and were called by God. So how do all of these things allow men who deserve hell to escape the wrath of justice? Ultimately, because God has declared it. He has chosen these things as a means of salvation and redemption through Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot in this passage, so let's let's wrap this up and conclude. In the text we looked at this morning, the primary thing Joel has taught us is that the Lord is overflowing with steadfast love towards his people even though they are completely undeserving of that steadfast love. But he will not redeem men who continue walking in rebellion to him. We must repent and return, rending our hearts and turning to him as our only hope of salvation and escape. God has delivered us from the penalty of our sin and has richly blessed us in this life. He has given us all we need to live and to minister to the world around us. And the only response to his provision and blessing on our lives is to turn around and give him the praise that he deserves. But we don't only praise him for what he has done, but what he has promised to do also. And he gave many promises to Israel in Joel's day, chief among them being the sending of his spirit into the hearts of his people. So the Lord has fulfilled many of the promises he made to Israel in Joel's day. But there are some promises which remain in front of us that we have not seen the fulfillment of yet. But we can trust that God will continue to guide us in the church to the final day where he will render final judgment on the earth. And he will gather his people together and they will walk through the fire and they will not be singed. So it reminds us this morning that the same God who pours out both physical and spiritual blessings on his people will be your only hope on the final day of the Lord. He's both your judge and your savior. Judgment day is coming. The fire is coming. Are you prepared for that? Have you gone over your escape plan? It was a dark and gloomy day of judgment and it's going to be followed by an eternal hell for those who are not in Christ. And it is only by the blood of Christ that any man will escape that judgment. The work of Jesus Christ is the perfect way of escape from the fires to come. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How? For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. The only escape is to be found in the place where God dwells. The only escape is to be found in Christ. So praise the Lord for His steadfast love towards his people. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you humbled because we know we are entirely undeserving of the great salvation that you have worked for us. There is nothing in us. There is nothing we have done, and yet you have called us your own. You have called us to repentance. You have called us to Christ. You have united us to him so that we might live, so that we don't have to, to dread the coming day of judgment, but instead we rejoice and we look forward to that day, because then we'll be with Christ forever perfectly, and we'll walk in glory with our God, and we will see him face to face. Lord, we rejoice in this this morning. Help us to continue in our praise of you. We ask it in Christ's name.